Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. It's Dr. McCall helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who has written a new book, The New Abnormal, uh, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. So he is a brave and courageous physician, psychiatrist, was trained at uh, the University of California before he objected to what was going on and made the decision to exit stage left with obvious consequences and destruction of his career and uh, firing him. And despite the fact that he has a family and five kids to support, you know, it's a pretty brave decision. So, uh, and forward by Robert, Robert Kennedy. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's, it's great to be here. As I mentioned, it took a lot of courage to write this book um, and you were, you're a psychiatrist and you were teaching medical ethics in medical school. Oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah, the irony. <laughs> Try to apply what you teach. Yeah. So uh, why, don't, why don't you tell us about your journey? And, you know, and I really want to, and you're, you're, you're a really articulated communicator, so I'll, I'll let you go with this. But what I would like you to touch on, in addition to what motivated you to do this, what motivates the vast majority, maybe even give us your estimate of the percentage of physicians who fail to do this. Yeah. Now, clearly, there's there are some uh, extenuating circumstances, uh, like many of like you, many of them have families to support, and you know they see what happens to with people like you that, that do this, and you know this is their sole source of income. They don't have another source of income, so that's an issue. And then the the fact that. 80% of the physicians in my generation when I graduated school were working for themselves. They were self-employed. Right. And That's a huge factor. Yeah. 20% were from corporations. Now it's totally reversed. Opposite. Totally exactly. Totally reversed. So, yeah. you know, with, with all that data, why don't you take it from there to, you know, expand on that and tell us why you were motivated to do this? Because it, yeah. it, it is a pretty spectacular choice to make. So as you mentioned, I was a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine for my entire career, all 15 years, plus four years of doing residency training there and <clears throat> doing both work in psychiatry. Uh, about half, half of my time was devoted to that. The other half of my time was devoted to directing a medical ethics program at the hospital. And as ethics program director and ethics community chair, I was involved in all basically all of the pandemic policy uh, <clears throat> drafting of, of these policies right up until the vaccine mandate. And when that policy came out, and this was a university-wide policy, meaning that uh, it affected all five of the University of California campuses that had hospitals or medical schools, uh, not just UC Irvine, where I worked. <clears throat> and our committee at the Office of the President had done the the ventilator triage policy, the vaccine allocation policy. Uh, but when it came to the mandate, the mandate just came down, the vaccine mandate came down from on high. And there was no 
discussion debate. Our committee was not involved in uh, drafting the policy. And I was very concerned about the lack of sort of open discussion and debate because of all the sensitive policies that we had developed during the pandemic. This one I thought was going to be the most ethically uh, controversial, problematic, uh, and, and, you know, the most publicly uh, sort of fraught. So I was puzzled by the fact that we didn't really have a conversation about it. And I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal last year uh, arguing, actually, it would have been two years ago now, arguing that vaccine <laughs> mandates uh, vaccine mandates are unethical. No, I take that back. It was last year. Gosh, so much has happened this year. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to keep track, for sure. <clears throat> and uh, I argued that they were unethical based on the principle of informed consent, which I teach to all the medical students every year. This this principle that an adult of sound mind has the right to decide what medications or uh, interventions to accept or decline. And they have the right to make this decision on behalf of their children who are not yet old enough to give consent. And I was very concerned that vaccine mandates were just tossing this principle over overboard, uh, you know, in the, under the, under the, the, the guise of, you know, we're in emergency. And so the regular rules don't apply. And I think it's precisely in wartime and crises that uh, it, it's all the more important to stand fast and hold on to our ethical principles because those are the times where we're you know, most tempted to abandon them. And when you do that, uh, you, you can often invite disaster. So what happened after I, I wrote the article was, again, sort of silence on the part of the university. I tried to engage, tried to get a debate going. Um, and instead, the university just went ahead and published their vaccine mandate and put the policy in place. And then I started seeing people getting steamrolled. I started seeing, uh, had, I had students reaching out to me because they, they know, they knew I had, you know, written this article and taken a more public stance. And they were saying things like, you know, I'm not a religious person. And so in good conscience, I don't want to submit a dishonest religious exemption, but I have other moral or ethical uh, concerns about this vaccine. And then I had people that I was seeing getting steamrolled because they couldn't get an appropriate medical exemption. And the reason they couldn't is that the California Medical Board had sent a letter basically threatening the license of any physician who wrote a quote unquote inappropriate exemption. Uh, they, of course, never defined what was appropriate versus inappropriate. So this had a real chilling effect on doctors in California. And I remember one patient, a young man, a patient of mine who went to his rheumatologist and this doctor told him, given your autoimmune condition, given what I've seen of the vaccine data so far, I, I recommend that you don't get the vaccine because I think, you know, you're young and otherwise healthy. You're not at high risk of COVID, but the vaccine could exacerbate your autoimmune condition. Same patient then turned to the same physician and said, okay, can you, can you write me a medical exemption? Because there's a mandate at my, uh, in my place of employment. The same doctor that just recommended against the vaccine said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that because uh, I might lose my medical license. So th this is the situation. This was the, in my view, intolerable situation that we found ourselves in, in, uh, in 20, uh, <clears throat> 2021. And I basically decided that, um, you know, I was projecting ahead to when I teach the required ethics course for 
medical students every January and February. And I, I just couldn't imagine trying to teach them the principle of informed consent, which I do in the second lecture, or, you know, talking with them about integrity and moral courage, you know, standing up and doing the right thing, even though you're sort of at the, at the bottom of the hospital hierarchy as a, as a medical student. Uh, I could imagine having those conversations if I had seen something being rolled out that I knew was wrong, that I knew was harming people. Um, you know, I, I could see my colleagues, nurses and other very good professionals in the hospital literally getting fired, uh, having their jobs threatened by this thing. If I hadn't stood up and done something, I, I just don't think I would have woken up with a clear conscience. So long story short, I filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the vaccine mandate. Uh, I made the argument on behalf of people with natural immunity, because I, I think that was just strategically, I think that was an argument that, that we could win legally. And the university acted very swiftly after I filed the lawsuit to first place me on what they called investigatory leave. And then a month later on unpaid suspension. And then a month after that, basically as swiftly as they could, they fired me. So back in December, I uh, lost my job at the university. And so I sort of scrambled to start a private practice. And um, I got some support from some independent think tanks, independent research institutes to support my public policy work. And, uh, and so this year has been a major transition for me, uh, sort of finding my footing and continuing to speak out against vaccine mandates and other problematic aspects of our COVID response. So as to your second question, why didn't more physicians stand up and uh, speak out? Uh, a simple answer is, well, you know, look what happened to me. I, 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 you know, I think it doesn't take too many public examples of someone, you know, get, losing their career, uh, getting quote unquote canceled to, uh, to, to scare most other people into submission. And as you mentioned, four or five physicians for large corporations and then beholden to administrators who may not even be physicians or healthcare professionals. They're, you know, they're looking at the institution's bottom line. And so you're having to answer the interests of the patient or the interests of the uh, medical staff or the nursing staff, you know, at the forefront of their mind, they're looking at, they're looking at financial, uh, uh, and and sort of bottom, and, and we know now that Medicare incentivized hospitals to overcount COVID. Medicare tied some of their reimbursements to having a certain number of hospital staff vaccinated. So that was another reason why they couldn't tolerate dissenters in the ranks. They didn't want to sort of start a movement of people opting out of the vaccine because it would have uh, they would have been basically penalized by the largest payer in the system, which is the, the federal government. Okay, so I'm personally curious. Um, it's been, you've been, you were booted out of the, your employment of 20 years from yeah. uh, about a year ago. And I'm wondering how it's going for you. Are you been able to uh, sort of replicate your salary and ability to provide for your family in the last year? Or, is it, or are you still struggling or a hardship? So uh, this year, um, you know, th that door was closed, but God opened up other doors for us. So I have been able to provide for my family um, and get sort of almost back to the point where I, I was before in terms of uh, 
you know, earnings. It's much more hand to mouth now. Uh, I, I don't know how things are going to look year to year. I'm not a salaried employee anymore, but I've been able to cobble together, you know, various sources of support, including including the book that I wrote to put food on the table this year. So so far, it's going well. I've been able to replicate, um, you know, my clinical work. I, I'm able to see my patients in my private practice. I'm able to do my research, and my writing, and my my speaking and uh, bioethics and public policy. So the Ethics and Public Policy Center in DC, the Brownstone Institute, the Zephyr Institute, these places have offered me a bit of support to uh, to keep that work going. The one thing, Dr. McCullough, that I haven't really been able to replicate, uh, at least not in the same way, is the teaching and supervision of med students and residents, which I really enjoyed. And, and I do miss the medical students and the psychiatry residents that I used to work with. At the universe, at the university, so that was hard to walk away from. But you know, when I mention that, other people have told me, "Yes, but you're you're teaching now. You're just teaching on a on a different and maybe even on a bigger scale." Uh, because you know, my case got quite a bit of attention, and so my social media profile expanded, and um, I, yeah, I've been given lots of opportunities this year to speak on podcasts like this to larger audiences. Uh, to speak at conferences. And I've met some extraordinary people in the, in the medical freedom movement, if you will. Uh, some, uh, so I have new colleagues and new friends that are really remarkable and amazing people uh, that I feel a, a strong connection with and, and solidarity with, because we're all trying to pull the cart in the same direction. And, and we're all concerned about what's happened to science and medicine during the pandemic, or I should say, you know, what's happened over the last several decades that really fully manifested during the pandemic. And so it's been exciting to be a part of that, to be able to testify at the U.S. Senate, um, at the California Senate, to get involved in some other legal cases that have to do with uh, physicians' free speech rights um, and, you know, preserving the integrity of the doctor-patient relationship so that outside governmental intrusions don't, don't undermine it. So the work I've done this year has been really tremendously rewarding, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, uh, so I have no regrets. And, you know, mm -hmm. even without all those things, uh, there's nothing better than waking up with a clear conscience and Absolutely. knowing that, you know, that I tried to do the right thing and that, that I wasn't, I didn't compromise my convictions uh, out of convenience. Congratulations for doing that. So you mentioned you're involved in other litigation and one is preserving yeah. the rights, uh, freedom of speech of physicians in California, which your, your, your license is. So I'm wondering if you can update us on the status of that legislation if you and your suspicions as to what were the outcome of that. And if the outcome is negative, in other words, if this foolish legislation is passed, and uh, essentially, physicians are handcuffed on what they can say. I, I, what, what will you wind up doing? Because I suspect yeah. if it's passed that you're going to be in deep water because you're not going to change your views and they're going to take your license away. Yeah, that's right. So <clears throat> I'm involved in a lawsuit along with four other California-based physicians challenging Assembly Bill 2098, which was passed in California this year, signed into law by the governor and is set to go into effect next month, 
this is legislation that empowers the medical board to discipline any physician in California who basically contradicts the uh, the state of California's preferred COVID policies. And the language of the bill has to do with uh, you know any any physician who contradicts the quote unquote current scientific consensus about COVID, which is not clearly defined in the law and which uh, most physicians will interpret to mean, I I don't want, I, I don't know what that means. So I'm just going to err on the side of never contradicting, you know, what the California Department of Public Health says about lockdowns or school closures or mass mandates or vaccine mandates or, uh, the vaccinations themselves. And so this, to my mind, obviously undermines the, the, the core element that has to be the centerpiece of medicine, which is the trust that the patient has in their physician. I, I don't know of any patient in the state, whether left, right, liberal, conservative, whatever your views politically are, whatever your views on these COVID measures are, COVID treatments are, I don't know of anyone who would want to go to their physician and ask their physician a question about the efficacy of masks or the safety and efficacy of vaccines and not have their physician give them an honest answer based on his or her actual medical judgment and reading of the scientific literature. Uh, So a physician with a gag order is not a physician that you can trust, right? You might, you might, decline your physician's recommendation. You might be wary of your physician's opinion on a particular topic. And so you might go seek a second opinion opinion, or you might do your own research. Great, no problem. But I think everyone wants their physician to uh, you know, be able to actually say what they think on these issues and not just be reading from a script that the government gave them. So this lawsuit challenges this uh, unjust law in federal court, again, on the basis of a constitutional claim that this, number one, infringes on the rights of free, free speech of the physician. And number two is also a violation of the 14th Amendment uh, equal protection rights of physicians. And basically, in legal terms, what that means is the law is so vague that it's not, it's not going to be clear to physicians when they are abiding by the law versus when they might be, uh, you know, in, in violation of the law. And uh, we, ha- we have a, a constitutional right that's been established, you know, by the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment to basically have laws that are sufficiently clear that a person can know whether or not, you know, they're in violation of the law so that you don't have this kind of looming thing in the background that, that you're always wondering you know, am I okay or am I not okay? And so I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that we will prevail in court. I think this is a pretty clear First Amendment violation. And I think our argument that lies is too vague to um, to pass constitutional muster is a strong argument. Uh, but you never know what the, what the courts are going to do. You never know, you know, what kind of judge you're going to get and whether the judge is willing to do something that runs contrary to uh, the prevailing opinion of, of our elite class or, or the, the views of the, of the government. So, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen. I don't really want to leave California. I'm going to sort of stay and, and fight for my rights and for medical freedom here. 
but you're right. I mean, if this law passes and if they if they want to make a public example out of me or any of the other plaintiffs in this suit, then I may be forced, you know, against against my preference to leave the state of California and decamp for a, a place that, you know, a state that's more friendly to the practice of Hippocratic medicine and, and more friendly to the to the rights of its citizens. So we'll see. But but for now, uh, this is my home and I'm not you know, I'm not going to go out quietly. Uh, in, your, in, in an attempt to have contingency preparations, I'm wondering if you've thought through applying for another state license that you might go to, because once your license yeah. is removed, as you're probably well aware, it becomes a more difficult to get a license yeah. in a different state. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I have started applying for a medical license in another state that would be one of our sort of top choices if we had to leave California. So I've had exactly the same thought and I'm trying to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Well, good. And, but is the uh, ruling on your case going to be before the law is implemented? No, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. We were hoping to get uh, a trial date set before the end of this calendar year, because as I said, the law goes into effect in January. We have filed a motion for what's called a preliminary injunction, which would halt the law while the case was being heard. But we won't get our hearing on that until a few weeks into January. So unfortunately, uh, the law is going to be in effect for a few weeks before uh, that injunction is hopefully granted. And that's not a good thing for, yeah. you know, physicians in California, risk, right? obviously. Darn. Thanks for that update. I wasn't sure yeah. where, where the stat, what the status of the process was, but thank you. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you too about a second case that I think is equally um, important. And that's also a case in federal court, but this one looking at the free, free speech issue at the national level. And this is a case called Missouri v. Biden, where the attorney mm -hmm. general of Missouri and Louisiana filed a lawsuit challenging, uh, basically naming as defendants several senior uh, administrators in, uh, you know, in Biden's, in Biden's administration, several people in various federal agencies that we are claiming these federal agencies have been colluding with social media, basically leaning on social media to do their bidding in terms of censoring ordinary Americans and our free speech rights on social media, particularly in regards to those of us who are challenging the government's preferred COVID policies. And there's been a lot of attention in recent weeks on the, on the Twitter files where we're kind of looking under the hood at that social media company and seeing, for example, a, a relationship with the FBI where the FBI is basically telling Twitter uh, you know what to do and what to what to censor and which accounts to to shut down, and you know arguably the social media companies can do this as private entities. There's legal debate about that, but inarguably, no one doubts that the federal government cannot uh, censor Americans. Right? That's a clear again free speech First Amendment violation, and the federal government cannot sort of suborn these social media companies. And really under the threat of if you, if you don't play ball with us, we're going to make like life difficult for you. We're going to you know regulate you in ways that will that you're not going to like. Uh, the government cannot 
uh, cannot pressure other entities into doing its bidding as a kind of long arm of its censorship regime. So I think this case uh, where basically the four private plaintiffs have have joined this case, myself, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Martin Kuldorf, who are two authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which was a an early critique of particularly our lockdowns and school closures. Uh, we, you know, we're hoping, first of all, to uncover exactly what's going on with this, uh, with this collusion. And the materials that we have so far in discovery in this case have clearly shown not only is this happening, but it's happening on a vaster scale than we suspected when we first filed the lawsuit. I think right now there's something like at least 17 different federal agencies that have been involved in this censorship regime. So I think that case is going to receive uh, uh, increasing uh, attention in the new year as it proceeds and as more and more information comes out from other investigative reporters on you know what's been going on probably for a while now, but really ramping up over the last three years during the pandemic. Is this the case that uh, where Fauci was deposed for seven or eight hours? Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, yeah. and he had a memory lapse of about like 200 questions. Yeah, that's that's right. Precisely. He said, I don't know. Yeah, close to 200 times or I, I rather I don't remember close okay. to 200 times. So I, I published a piece recently in Compact Magazine. I republished it on my Substack, where it's it's not behind a paywall called Fauci's Amnesia, where uh, you know, it's it's a it's a critique really of Fauci's entire career, but the piece ends with an account of what happened during that deposition and some of the interesting revelations that we have, but also the 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 wildly implausible uh, sort of memory lapses for for things that he did during the pandemic that clearly show, you know, to my mind that there's there's a lot that he's not saying. And if he were to be honest on these things, he's probably worried that it would implicate him in ways that are problematic. Smart guy in many ways. So he's, he, yeah, he's cunning. I think that's that's the right word. Yeah, that's it. right. Cunning would be a far better choice of words. You're correct. So I'm curious, have um, with all the that you've been through, if, if Twitter, I would suspect they have banned you. And if they have banned you, are you reinstated with the with the bulk of the others that have come back? Yeah, fortunately, I have not been banned by Twitter. I sized up pretty early on after seeing some of my friends uh, like Peter McCullough and Robert Malone banned and looking at the tweets that they were banned for. So I I learned to speak on Twitter in a sort of coded language on those issues where if I were to just put it more bluntly, they would have given me a strike. And I, I thought it was important to well, I hated, you know, while I hated sort of doing things on Twitter with a wink and a nod um, and, and not not being as as explicitly clear as I wanted to be. I also thought, look, if, if they kick me off the platform, you know, that's not going to do anyone any good. So I managed to navigate Twitter without a ban. I did have videos taken down from YouTube of conversations like this and interviews. Um, I had some trouble with LinkedIn. Uh, so the, the other the other social media companies certainly uh, subjected me to censorship, and I I know with I know very clearly that there was I, w- I was under the thumb of this sort of shadow banning algorithms 
at Twitter, you know, automatically kicking off followers, people who had been following me saying they had to refollow me several times because the, the, you know, the system would automatically sort of uh, unfollow uh, things like that. So, um, so Twitter, uh, you know, Twitter did lean on my account and limited certainly the scope of its reach, but it's been refreshing certainly to have uh, Twitter, you know, under new management. And it's been great to see Malone and McCullough and others that were booted from the platform, Dr. Ryan Cole, uh, you know, back on there, able to to speak uh, more freely and more clearly. So this is a this is a positive development uh, here as we as we approach yeah. the end of 2022. Some a little bit of light on the horizon. Yes, indeed. So as a psychiatrist, I'm really curious to get your professional input on on a tangential issue, but certainly related, and that is. Matthias Desmet is a psychologist who was well-known and popularized by Robert Malone about this time last year when a New Year's mm-hmm. Eve, when, when he was on Joe Bogan, or at least when Joe Rogan broadcast his interview and popularized the term mass formation. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can give us your take on that and how significant a contributor it is to what we're seeing now, uh, and, you know, uh, to what, what Matthias uh, describes as a hypnosis and really yeah. responsible for uh, brainwashing effectively 30 one third of the population so i think the mechanism that he describes is uh, an accurate description of what can happen under these kinds of circumstances i think matthias's book the Psycho- psychology of totalitarianism is brilliant it's a very important um, contribution to the literature, not only on what happened during COVID, but what what has happened at other points in history where society and the masses, so to speak, really lost their way and 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 went off a cliff and and collect collectively did things that um, that later on we look back on with horror. I don't think mass formation is the only mechanism at work uh, in terms of accounting for our COVID response. And so in addition to that theory, which I mentioned in my book, I take a look at the the more deliberate employment and deployment of fear uh, Mm -hmm. through propaganda and through other subtle and not so subtle mechanisms of coercion that were operating during the pandemic, uh, financial incentives, uh, power dynamics, that also helped to account for what happened to us and why so many people went along with it. And the, the control of the flow of information it has been extremely important during the pandemic. I think without the government's uh, partnering with private entities in this you know, vast censorship enterprise, we, we, we would not have adopted policies like lockdowns and school closures. We would have had much more pushback against policies like vaccine mandates than we saw. But, you know, when you, first of all, you lock people down at home and so they're isolated behind screens, forced to interact with one another only through this sort of medium. They can't have quiet face-to-face conversations at the water cooler. Um, and then you control the flow of information that they're getting through the control of social media, the control of mainstream 
media. Uh, and then you deploy very sophisticated, high level uh, propaganda techniques, wartime propaganda techniques. Uh, and you deliberately deploy fear as a mechanism of control. Then you create conditions where uh, people people go along um, with manifestly unjust policies, and not only you know are not troubled by that, but actually believe that they're doing good. These things are framed as you know duties of of a good citizen. And uh, people who challenge these policies are immediately branded with, uh, you know, you only care about money, you don't care about, you know, not killing grandma, this sort of thing. And this, this desire to be a good person, this desire to be seen as, uh, you know, among the virtuous, because I've done what I'm told to do, and I've done what it looks like everyone else is, is wanting to do or, or being told to do. This is a very powerful tonic that has proven to be very effective over the last three years. So I'm wondering if you'd care to comment on the controversy around this mass formation with respect to yeah. some internal division that has occurred. Because another psychiatrist, I'm sure you're well familiar with, Peter Bregan, legendary, the yeah. psychiatrist who was responsible for essentially eliminating the lobotomy technique. Um, has also taken a passionate interest in COVID um, and helping under people understand what's going on like, like you have. And he's t he was somehow, some way moved against um, Matthias's book and his comments and thought he might have been yeah. a controlled opposition and then uh, continued that comment to about Dr. Malone. And yeah. Dr. Malone filed a lawsuit against him. And it's it just, it, it's so sad because we're, we're all on the same side. And, they, and they're exactly they're, they, yeah. the opposition is so much bigger than us. Yeah. <laughs> just, so it, it's just, I'm just wondering, you, you, you clearly are well studied on this. And with yeah. your professional training, I, I would really, if you're willing to share, appreciate what you have to say on this. Yeah. So I likewise have been saddened to, uh, you know, see this strife. Uh, and conflict, and now apparently a legal issue between uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. Bregan. I have respect for both of them. I don't know uh, Peter Bregan personally, but I'm familiar with his work. Um, Malone, I do know personally, um, and you know, have in encouraged him to sort of make peace and reconcile with some other people in this movement that um, you know that he's. Uh, currently in, in conflict with, and you're absolutely right. The, the enemy is so, so large uh, that um, this kind of internal strife in this movement is, uh, is really what's, what's ultimately going to bring us down or, or get in the way of us uh, fighting the, the real enemy. So in terms of their argument, I don't see why Bregan's position has to be incompatible with um, with Matthias Des Desmet's theory. And if I'm reading if I'm reading Bregan correctly, I think his concern is that if we adopt the mass formation theory and we assume that people are sort of in this 
hypnotic state of, of sort of sleepwalking through this stuff, that it means that individuals involved in these really harmful measures are, are not personally responsible. And so Bregan wants to say that, no, there are bad actors doing bad things and we have to hold them responsible and accountable for those bad things. And I think that's absolutely true. But I also think it's true that this process of mass formation is contributing to what we're seeing, especially among people who don't you know, necessarily have expertise in this matter, don't know how to read the scientific literature, uh, are doing the best they can and are just you know, getting their information through the television or the, or the computer screen. Uh, so on the one hand, I, I want to say yes to Bregan's push for personal responsibility, especially the, you know, from those who are in a position of authority, who are making these policies, who are advancing these policies, uh, who are propping them up. So, you know, doctors and scientists clearly, to my mind, have a greater degree of responsibility than the ordinary citizen who doesn't have medical or scientific training. So I, I'm not sure that there's um, actually an argument to be had there. And I, you know, knowing what I know of Matthias as well, I've corresponded with him a bit. I think he would be the first one, uh, f- first person to say, yeah, this does not sort of, um, uh, this does not sort of remove all responsibility from the people who are involved in what is essentially a totalitarian movement. Uh, he certainly is a believer in personal responsibility and doesn't want to say, you know, that it's only unconscious uh, or social forces that are driving all of our behaviors. So my own view on this argument is that it's a bo- both and issue rather than an either or issue. I mean, human beings are enormously complex and we have conscious intentional motivations and we have unconscious unintentional uh, you know, factors that are shaping our thinking and shaping our behavior. And so I, I think it would be good for both sides of this debate to acknowledge that the other side is making some valid points. Um, and, you know, there's there's no reason that uh, these folks can't sort of shake hands and try to get along and try to learn from one another. And, you know, maybe Matthias needs to make it more clear that his his theory doesn't remove personal responsibility from uh, those in power or those advancing this agenda. And, you know, Bregan needs to remember as a psychiatrist that human beings are, you know, social animals and that we're enormously complex and that, um, you know, things other than sort of clear, intentional, rational thought are often operating, especially when you're talking about something as complex as, you know, a a society-wide response to a crisis. So, you know, I'm an advocate of reconciling these two sides (laughs) of the debate. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you on that one. So as a side tangent, which you just mentioned, the personal responsibility and accountability for these actions, uh, you have really clear insights of this, very pragmatic. And I'm wondering what your views are on the likelihood of that happening in light of the progressively increasing power of the global cabal and technocracy and control just about every area of 
law and legislation yeah. and power. So, I mean, the practicalities, of what, what, will they ever be held accountable? Will there ever be a Nuremberg 2.0? And will these people, you know, be brought to justice? I have serious doubts that those most responsible for our disastrous response to the pandemic will be held accountable. Uh, I, I don't see right now the political will uh, to 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 do that, unfortunately. And I'm not sure that's going to change in the next couple of years. I do think we will get to the point where we recognize that the pandemic response was disastrous. But I, I think by that point, it will be it will be too late uh, to hold the people responsible accountable. I mean, if you look at the history of science, one of the ways in which science advances is that uh, scientists die. Uh, in other words, the, the old guard who, is whole, who, who were in positions of, of power, who were sort of gatekeepers at the journals or the academic medical centers or you know, the, within the power structure of organized science or organized medicine, uh, and who are holding on to an old theory, even when the data is now in favor of the new theory, some of those people have to retire. Some of those people have to have to have to pass away before, you know, a younger generation who's more skeptical of the old theory and, and you know, willing to advance the new theory can move into those positions of, of power and authority so that all those human factors are at work when we, we talk about uh, progress in in science and medicine, or when we talk about sort of coming to terms with things uh, that have uh, that have gone disastrously wrong. So my own view is that something like that is probably going to be the more likely outcome. People uh, that are far enough away from, uh, you know, responsibility for the pandemic response, maybe younger, a younger generation who lived through it, and who's dealt with the lifetime consequences of school closures, can come along and look back a little more objectively, you know, with some critical distance and some time and, uh, you know, do the, do the, do the work of digging through the history of the, of the pandemic and looking at the scientific data more objectively. So I think, I think we will get to the point where there's sufficient, maybe generational change and, you know, people like Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, have, uh, are no longer with us, perhaps, uh, and no longer putting their thumb on the scale, trying to control the narrative, uh, that will come to terms with uh, just how disastrous the last three years have been. But I, I, I don't see, you know, in a year or two, um, anything like a Nuremberg 2.0, where, you know, people are actually held responsible. I, th I think if um, I, I think if we get to the point where, uh, you know, it's time to acknowledge uh, that certain decisions were were wrong, there may be a few. Um, uh, I don't I don't know if scapegoats is the right word, but I mean, there, there may be a, a, a there may be a few people who, uh, you know, lose their jobs or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, they take the fall so to speak, a sort of fall guy mechanism to try to placate the masses who are really angry about, you know, 
something like school closures. You know, who is responsible for this? Well, obviously, many people were. Um, you know, but uh, but maybe we'll you know maybe we'll offer you know one person up uh, to sort of placate uh, the masses. So I think we've gotten to the point where very few people will defend school closures. We've gotten to the point where it's much easier to criticize lockdowns. We're not there yet on the mass vaccination campaign, and I think that's going to be the hardest nut to crack. Um, it's it's in some ways been the most disastrous aspect of the pandemic response, arguably, but it's the one where just the most money uh, is on the line, the most is on the line in terms of professional reputation. And, you know, I the people who pushed for these kinds of policies are, are not people who will ever publicly acknowledge that they made any mistakes. That's just straight up never going to happen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, I, you know, I think eventually we'll come to a, a, a more accurate perspective on what happened to us, but I think it's going to take a long time. And I, I don't see, you know, I don't see the, the key individuals involved in this ever being sort of brought to justice. I'd like to get your insights on your beliefs as to what might happen in the future or even relatively near future with respect yeah. to re-implementation of something that just happened with the COVID. I mean, we, we had event 201 occurring in October of 2019, which is essentially a dress rehearsal for what happened eight weeks later. Uh, and interestingly, just earlier this year, on October 23rd, 2022, we have almost the identical scenario happening. It's called yeah. catastrophic contagion. We've got uh, Bill Gates involved, Johns Hopkins, World Health Organization, predicting that there's going to be a pandemic in 2025. This time it's called Sears, uh, severe epidemic enterovirus respiratory infection. Yeah. Uh, so, but this time primarily focusing on getting cooperation with the Africans because it seems like the COVID-19, as bad as it was, was in, was just a you know, it's the, it, it was a fine tuning of the process they're going to use mm -hmm. in the future. So do you believe that something like that would happen or maybe even exactly like that since they've had this history of, okay. of essentially telling us what they're going to do and then do it? Yeah, and I know it's three years away, but maybe they're going to pull a lever the, uh, next year or two years instead of three. Yeah, there was also, by the way, a monkeypox simulation. Yeah, that that predicted like down to the months, right? When the actual mon monkeypox. Now the monkeypox was box. almost close to the day too, and, yeah, and it was unca location uncanny. Uncanny in the UK. Uh, un uncanny, uh, and you know the mon monkeypox never took hold as sort of the next the next crisis. Um, but yeah, I think I think we've adopted a new model of governance, and this is what I argue in the new abnormal that even though a lot of these individual policies have been rolled back, some of the problematic policies that we've mentioned. Uh, the, the whole infrastructure for mm -hmm. lockdowns, for uh, digital surveillance through uh, vaccine passport type technology uh, and through digital track and trace technology, this, this infrastructure has been put in place. It's still in place and it's just waiting for the next declared public health crisis. And this new model of governance that involves, you know, unprecedented level of control over people's lives, their movements, their their speech, their freedom of association, 
uh, sort of requires that we jump from one declared crisis to the next to keep this state of emergency going so that certain people can maintain power that they don't want to relinquish and actually continue to advance their aims. And in chapter three of the book, I talk about what, what are some of the next steps in the rollout of this, what I call a biosecurity or biomedical security paradigm, uh, things like digital IDs tied to biometric data, like your iris scan, your face ID, your fingerprint, uh, eventually data uh, from wearables or implantable devices on you know, your, your vital signs and your moment to moment sort of health status or emotional status. Um, and central bank digital currencies will be sort of the financial arm of, uh, of, of that monitoring and surveilling and controlling apparatus. And so there's going to be another declared public health crisis. Uh, you see a, an attempt to reframe other issues from racism to climate change as public health issues. Um, and so, you know, serious people in positions of power have uh, floated serious proposals to do rolling lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis, for example, or the energy crisis in Europe. So, um, so we're, we're going to see something and whether it's a computer virus or whether it's an enterovirus, a gastrointestinal bug that disproportionately impacts children uh, because children were largely spared from COVID and, you know, not enough parents vaccinated their children in the eyes of, of the sort of biosecurity um, par paradigm elites. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's going to be... I, I don't know exactly what issue is is going to be the one that sort of takes hold, but there will be another declared public health crisis sometime in the next uh, two to three years with attempts not only to revive COVID era policies and mechanisms of control, but to advance additional pieces in that re regime. Uh, of that, I have absolutely no doubt. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book, the book is not primarily a retrospective on what went wrong with COVID. There's, there's some of that account in the book and some account of sort of where this stuff came from and, and the developments behind the scenes over the last 20 years. But primarily the book is wanting to look toward the future and to ask, okay, how is this apparatus, this biomedical security apparatus going to be deployed down the road and what are the next steps in that process so that uh, we can realize that if we don't start standing up for certain freedoms, if we don't draw lines and say, you know, these are rights that should never be relinquished, even, even during an, an emergency or a declared crisis, if we don't start doing that and if we're not aware of what the next steps in this process are going to be and how they're going to be sold to us, then we're going to find ourselves caught off guard once again. And, you know, in a crisis where there's fear and uncertainty, we're not going to be able to think clearly. We're going to lose our heads again and we're going to wake up in a year or two or three and wonder, you know, how did we get here? <laughs> what happened to us? And I don't want to see that happen again, because we've already relinquished enough of our freedoms. We've already endured the enormous collateral harms of our of our disastrous pandemic policies. And um, 
you know, we, 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 to my view, we just simply, we can't go down that road again in, in another few years. So in an effort to help enlighten people about what the potential possibilities for that future are, you wrote an epilogue. And the epilogue, yeah. and I forget where the what the setting is, but it's, it's in Washington. It's either 2025 or 2030. And yeah. you pre, you predict possible outcome. It's yeah. quite frightening and dystopian. So maybe you can touch on that. And I want to go back to uh, the digital ID and the the, the CBDCs, because I think they're yeah. important. Yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that. You're right. The epilogue of the book, which happens to be my own, my own personal favorite part of the book, is called Seattle 2030. And it imagines a, a sort of high-tech, smart city seven years from now and what life under that regime will look like. And what I do in the first half of the epilogue is try to show, try to give the reader a sense of, of how some of these um, you know, new technologies and new measures are, are going to be sold to the public. So the first couple of pages of the epilogue don't seem dystopian. They seem like, okay, there's, there's some interesting things going on here. Um, and things don't, things don't sound so bad. Right. Um, and it's only once you get about halfway through that you start seeing, okay, but there are some flies in the ointment and there's some people in this society, uh, under this regime who are not benefiting, who are sort of excluded, um, by the, the social credit system and other mechanisms of, of social and financial control. Uh, there are certainly health problems that are are not being solved by you know twice a year mRNA injections and probably being exacerbating exacerbated by this model of treating human beings as though we're we're hardware that needs twice a year software updates in the form of gene therapies. And then by the hopefully by the end of the of the epilogue, I'm not going to give away the punchline. Uh, you know, you the, the reader sort of wakes up and recognizes, oh my goodness, this is this is not the kind of society that I want to uh, live in. This is certainly not the kind of society that I want my children or my grandchildren to grow up in. And and what I did with the epilogue is I, I put it in the not too distant future. I think it's pretty easy for us to imagine our lives seven years from now. You know, if I had put it twenty or thirty years in the future, it can feel a little bit too remote. And the other thing I did is I didn't invent any new technologies to describe in the epilogue. Uh, what I said was, okay, let's take the technologies that are already available, but are not yet adopted on a mass scale, uh, but for which there's there's going to be a push in the next couple of years to adopt these technologies and use them in this way. And then just imagine what life would be like under those conditions. So it's not science fiction in the sense of, um, you know, I'm inventing not yet existing spaceships or not yet existing medical technology uh, and, and describing what that society would look like. It's no, a few years from now, if certain things that are readily available are adopted on a mass scale and deployed in particular ways, this is what your life is going to look like. Is this the kind of life uh, that you want to lead? And so it, it's an attempt to sort of bring together the future-oriented um, uh, sort of gaze of, uh, of the book and help people really get a firm and concrete grasp of what's coming down the pike if we don't stand up and resist. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that it's going to come down even if we do resist because it's, it seems the inevitable drive yeah. of technology that pushed us to this level. And so yeah. the, the options become 
how do you, or the considerations become, how do you opt out? Which I want to go back to the CBDCs and the the digital IDs, because I think that's a really important part of the equation. Especially, I mean, it's absolutely inevitable that within 2023 to 24, these are things yeah. are going to be deployed. Earlier this, just last month in November, the, the Bank of New York started their their trial run on this, and most every other country is starting it. So it's inevitable. But so I, w- I want you to go over the CBDCs, what they are, how they control us, how they program us. And it appears they're going to be volunteer initially, with offering a lot of convenience, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. They also appear to be inevitable. So, I mean, what is the way to, to opt out of this system? I mean, I've got some ideas, but I'm really curious to hear what your, your perspective yeah. is. Yeah. So this is a really hard problem, and it's a really important question. And I think we have to learn how to opt out of the system and develop, whether it's a parallel economy or parallel uh, medical institutions that truly are independent. Uh, we have to do that right now. And we have to develop those things soon, because if we collectively get into a, an opt-in situation with digital IDs and central bank digital currencies, then resistance to that system will be almost impossible. And I'll explain why I say that. So central bank digital currencies need to be distinguished from decentralized digital, digital currencies like Bitcoin. Um, the, the feds are issuing a digital dollar. And if that digital currency is adopted to the point where we've gone entirely cashless, uh, then we're in a situation in which you can be locked out of your ability to engage in uh, financial transactions if you don't comply or if you don't behave. And I explained in the book that if you have a digital dollar in your digital wallet, it's not actually the same as a, a dollar bill in your real wallet. Um, and the reason is, let's say the government gives you a $1,000 uh, tax rebate in the form of a digital dollar. And they may even sweeten the deal saying, we'll give you, we'll give you a $1,000 uh, you know, check in your bank account, or we'll give you $1,200 in the form of a digital dollar, right? Oh, okay, I'll take the digital dollar. That's a no-brainer. Uh, it's more money. Well, you know, two, three years from now, once once we've gone cashless, that digital dollar can be programmed uh, to, uh, you know, to, to have conditions attached to it. In other words, the government can say, yeah, here's your tax rebate, but you got to spend this $1,200 sometime in the next nine months. Um you know, and if you don't, then it's going to turn into $600. And if you don't spend it, you know, in the next six months after that, it's going to disappear, right? So what you have in your digital wallet is not actually like cash. Cash doesn't just disappear. It doesn't have an expiration date on it. So a digital dollar is, is potentially- aside from, is a, aside from inflation. <laughs> yeah, it's a, there, well, there you go. There you go. There are other ways to make your dollar disappear uh, or, or shrink. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh the government can also say uh, you have to spend it on these favored industries or you can't spend it on these disfavored industries. You know, you you can't give a donation or contribution to support Dr. McCullough's podcast because he's, you know, he's a disinformation spreader or you have to spend it on green energy or or whatever. <clears throat> Once this is tied to a digital ID the government will be able to track all of your financial transactions using this digital currency 
it will be able to nudge you and punish you in the ways that I have described. And if you try to opt out of that system, basically you're, you're, you're not going to be able to engage in financial transactions or you, you know, you're going to find yourself in some parallel economy that involves, you know, bartering chickens or, or something like that, you know, very primitive uh, kind, kind of economic transactions because, you know, all of the banks and all of the, uh, you know, society's mainstream institutions are going to rely on this, uh, on this digital system of, uh, productivity and exchange and currency to engage in all their, all their transactions. So once the system is in place, it's going to be very hard to resist because an algorithm in the sky or a person can push a button and look, you can, you know, you can no longer buy gasoline. Uh, you can no longer, uh, you know, purchase things on online, you know, unless you get your booster shot or unless you do what the, what the public health authorities are are telling you to do. So it, it's a system of near total surveillance and control that would have made the totalitarian dictators of the past, you know, salivate, you know, uh, Hitler or Stalin could only have dreamed of this level of intrusive surveillance and minute control over the movements um, and the behavior of the populations that they were, um, you know, that they were, that they were governing. Right. So I'm, I'm a bit confused because, uh, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it, but I, I really want to like the details on what your v- vision or concept is of opting out and resisting this vol- initially yeah. voluntary adoption. I mean, my, my, my perception is that really the core here is, is a community and yeah. uh, you will, you know, you mentioned parallel economy and, and chickens, and I wouldn't recommend chickens necessarily, but chicken eggs work really, really <laughs> well because they're a pre, you don't have to. They're know, renewable. <laughs> they're renewable and it's instant, ready to use. There's no yeah. butchering involved or anything, uh, and much, much more. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's renewable. So anyway, the, the concept is to develop a parallel economy yeah. and a community, which I think is the key. To me, in my mind, it's got to be one of the most central parts of the equation of the resistance is this community and opting out of the digital digital period because the Internet's not going to exist as we know it today. And they can yeah. shut it down in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I think. um I think we need to start thinking small and local and rooted and to develop um, strong face-to-face communities of communication and interaction and mutual support and exchange. Um, Currency works because of a communal agreement that when I give you this piece of paper, it's going to be worth something. And hopefully that piece of paper is backed by something. Uh, and when it's not, you can develop lots of different economic problems. But but nonetheless, uh, a sort of mutual agreement that we're going to use this mechanism of of exchange and this mechanism of of, of measuring market value is the is how currency becomes currency. And so a collective uh, saying no, we're not going to go cashless. A collective um, saying no, we're not going to transition all of our assets into a central, centrally controlled 
digital currency will halt the process of that becoming the default or the only the only game in town. So beyond that, I, I wish I could tell you what the answer <laughs> looks like and what these parallel economies are going to look like. And I, I don't know the answer to that. And part of the reason I don't know the answer to that is because that's not that's not how um, novel solutions develop. Novel mm. solutions don't develop from you know a, a couple of perceptive or intelligent people that figuring it all out. They mm. require the collective wisdom mm. of a, a lot of people trying things, some of which don't work, and some of which work. They require people at the local level asking what are the the needs of the the population here close to home, which may look very different uh, from the needs of a population in a different setting or in a different context. And so, you know, can everyone take the sort of um, uh, self-sustained, crunchy option of opening a you know small self-sustaining farm and having the chickens that lay the eggs? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I'm built to live on a farm. <laughs> I think I'm built probably to live in a more population dense urban setting. Uh, but but I, I think all of us have some kind of role in, in conceiving of solutions or of implementing solutions on the ground or of trying things at the local level. So the generic advice that I can give is recognize, first of all, what are the most dangerous things coming down the pike. And I think those two things, the digital IDs and central bank digital currencies are the most pressing ones that I, at least I have identified. I'm sure there are other, there are other things as well. How about, how, how about the world health organization, global pandemic treaty, which will allow the, them to have the authority to, yeah. to mandate a global emergency and have emergency powers at a climate change or another pandemic. Yeah or financial reset, you know, they could do it at a heartbeat. So, yeah. and with these, these two resources in place, because they've had time to refine. Yeah. So uh, the world health organization is too uh, incompetent and it's too much of a, a, a dumb clunky bureaucracy, you know, to, to become a world dominating governing entity. Uh but the, the WHO treaty and the changes to the international health regulations that have been proposed there are dangerous uh, because essentially the World Health Organization is, is going to operate as a kind of cipher for private financial interests and large globe, you know, globe spanning corporations and firms, you know, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to, um, you know, the massive uh, financial giants that that control huge assets. The WHO is going to be a sort of um, quasi-governmental mechanism to advance the political and economic aims of those actors. So I think that's why the WHO is, is dangerous. Most of its funding comes from uh, from private sources, right? A, a huge chunk of its funding comes not from the, the governments that it's supposed to assist with um, public health crises or public health issues, but it comes from places like the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, so what's happening at the WHO 
is important, but I, I think you have to kind of peek behind the curtain and recognize that the WHO is itself going to be suborned by mm-hmm. big pharma. Uh, by but the, end, the, end, the end result's the same, though. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But that I, I guess what I want to say is that is the threat is not primarily, you know, the people in charge of NGOs or or the UN. The people who are really going to be pulling the strings are the, the people with enormous financial assets. Um, and so it will be a, you know, it'll be, it'll be the United States of Pharma rather than the United States of the WHO. Um, I like so, the, US, the USP, United States. Yeah, Canada. yeah. <laughs> so the uh, I really love and I really do, man. I deeply appreciate your insights as to what this parallel economy might be, because it never occurred to me that it is, doesn't yet exist, and most most likely will evolve into a, a variety of unique scenarios depending yeah. on the local circumstances. Yeah, that is really really solid insight. So I appreciate that. I'm a bit concerned though about. Uh, a recommendation for you that you appear to be likely adopting, which is to stay in a large urban density because it's comfortable. And they clearly are a lot of convenience, but it, you know, that could be potentially a fatal mistake, I think, because it seems that the, the, the trend that the globalists are pushing is to push people into these large urban yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so much easier to control them. And if, and if a truly significant catastrophe happens, like the grid goes down, or the yeah. water structure goes out, which if you could easily take the grid the grid out in a false flag, that would be so simple to do and blame it on a domestic terrorist. Uh, you're, if you're in a large urban center, it's not going to fare well. That doesn't mean you have to go out to a farm and do it yourself, but to a local community, which isn't as widely populated, is going to fare far better than these large urban, urban concentrations. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I, I do want to clarify, I am not recommending to other people that they stay in large urban settings. Um, I was just speaking, you know, for myself personally, um, I'm a, I'm a stay in the fight kind of person, (laughs) right? I haven't left California. Um, I haven't left a a population dense, uh, Orange County where I live. Um, and I, you know, I think, I, I think I'm personally, I'm suited to kind of stay in the game, uh, on, on these public issues and, and continue, uh, you know, continue to try to push back um, and and mount resistance to the institutional changes that we're seeing. That's why I'm involved in these lawsuits. But I recognize that, you know, I'm a bit of a strange bird in that regard. And, you know, most people don't, don't want to spend their entire lives fighting the mega machine. Uh, you know, they want to go live, live their lives. So um, so while I'm going to, you know, continue doing this, and I think the people who stay in urban settings need to find small communities and pockets of resistance within those urban settings. I wouldn't, I, I would be the first person to say, I wouldn't generalize that recommendation to, to anyone else. Um, because I, I think you're right. I mean, people that are in population dense areas are, you know, in some respects easier to control. And, you know, some of the worst kind of pandemic measures were being done in the city of Los Angeles or the county of Los Angeles or the or the city of of New York. And very often if you went to a more rural setting, you would, you know, you would find a much more sensible response to uh, to you know what happened during 
COVID. And this is, I mean, this is one of the geniuses of our federalist system is, you know, fortunately we had a few states, mm -hmm. Florida being a good example that said, no, we're going to, we're going to do things differently. Or, you know, they woke up after a few months and decided, you know, we're going to do things differently. And so they, they provided a, a kind of control group for this. Otherwise, what would have been a national experiment and Florida can now say, look, we didn't lock down. We didn't destroy small businesses. We didn't close the schools for very long and age adjusted mortality from COVID was the same as California that did all these, you know, enormously destructive measures. So, so that's a good thing. Uh, localism, variety, um, small communities, whether in urban or rural settings, I think all of these things are important. Uh, there's, I think there's some people that are going to be called to, you know, to stay within the medical institutions and try to reform or fight from within. Others are going to, you know, be called to develop a sort of uh, parallel infrastructure of whether it's it's medicine or food production or, you know, any of the other, uh, you know, thousand things that need to be done uh, for a healthier and more flourishing society. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't necessarily have a general recommendation that would be applicable to everyone because I think we all we all have our own gifts and talents. Yeah, well, that's the recommendation. It's, yeah, it's specific. It's unique. It's there you a, go. There, there you go. Really, you have a very uh, wise perspective on it, and I really appreciate it because it's just general guidelines. Those what you need. You you can't get specifics because it has to be customized for the individual, for yeah. the family. So, but th these are real, and you warned us of the variables that we need to be careful of, the, the uh -huh. big ones, the, the uh, digital IDs and the CBDCs, we have to be very, very cautious of in, in developed communities. So these are powerful general strategies that, you know, once people appreciate, they can implement them and, and be successful. So, Yeah, and I, I think, you know, to end on a more optimistic note, human beings are enormously creative and uh History is full of surprises and what can look like a really dire situation, sort of third act crisis in the story can sometimes be met with a sudden and unexpected reversal where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the evil regime or movement sort of falls apart under the weight of its own contradictions. I mean, very few people could have predicted the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, just a couple of years earlier, you know, that this would happen without violence and that, you know, the Soviet satellite states and that whole regime would sort of crumble in a way that was more or less peaceful, you know, with the solidarity movement in Poland and other other things that had, um, you know, made this this possible. So, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer that uh, history is full of unexpected surprises and, and individuals and small communities are full of enormous creative energy and if we can just uh, you know uh, create conditions in which that creative energy conditions of freedom in which that creative energy can be unleashed then you know we're going to go through difficult times and um you know but uh but we're you know we're going to be okay in yeah, the end well, yeah. great words end on and it's pretty obvious to me you must have had great parents because you have enlightened wisdom i do so. Yeah, I do. They're <laughs> wonderful really people. Do. Yeah. So thanks for your commitment, your bravery, your dedication, and uh, taking the arrows in the back for what you've done and your continued perseverance at seeking to help others, which is, I think. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for your work. I really I, I appreciate um, 
everything that you're doing and, you know, the, the, the reach that you have and the, the trust that so many people have in your work who have learned to be mistrustful of um, mainstream medicine. So uh, you've been a, a voice of sanity during, uh, during well, well prior to this, but also uh, <laughs> clearly I've, I've become more familiar with your work during the pandemic. And it, it's been, it's been great reading your pieces. Well, thank you for those, those kind words and uh, keep up the great work. Your book, um, is the new abnormal and i believe it's available now mm -hmm. uh, and i i really I, in my view I, I most enjoyed the epilogue i mean the rest of the book Thank is you. good too but i but i, I it, it isn't science fiction but it's like science fiction and i like yeah. science fiction, yeah so. good good uh, no, thank you for that all right well sounds good and uh, you keep up the great work and uh, thanks Likewise. for everything